0: As always, our show is sponsored by Memoria Press. You can find our curriculum at memoriapress.com.
1: Welcome to Classical Etc., a show from Memoria Press that dives into the philosophy, culture, and heart of classical education. You're in the studio with Shane Saxon.
0: Welcome to another episode of Classical Etc. And on today's episode, we're going to do a little Q&A. We have a number of questions that people on YouTube have posted, and we are going to work through them, try to answer them. But before we do that, I do want to do a book reading update, even though it's a busy season. I know that you all don't, don't have a lot of time for reading, but because I really just want to talk about what I've been reading, is that okay? I'm thrilled. I actually finished a book last
1: night and I was oh, hoping so you're you'd ready ask you. I am too. ready for it. This is
0: exciting. Well, let me say that I confessed on the podcast a few weeks ago that I have a principle of living where if I'm listening to an audiobook, always rewind. If I zone out and I'm not listening, always rewind. Yep. I did that with the beautiful and the damned. And I just finished it, and it, it was re- it was good. I enjoyed it. Um, I really want to talk to somebody who's read it. Who I have a theory that Gloria in the novel is a metaphor for art, and I w- I want to hear from somebody if that they think that that's true. Now, but, is that that is that his first book? I believe it's his second. I think he wrote The Side of Paradise first, and then okay. I think it's The Side of Paradise. I second. read.
2: I have not read Beautiful and the Damned. Yeah.
0: Sounds like you need to participate in
1: our book club and get us to read it. Yeah.
3: Well what we could read next. We could read next. So it we could okay. help Shane.
0: Yeah. Well, I'd like to talk about it. And then I also finished Orthodoxy. So I finished Orthodoxy and oh, Man, I
3: haven't even started it. Don't tell Lee because then she'll be disappointed you in me. It? No?
0: You've
2: never read Orthodoxy.
3: That's exactly <laughs> Lee Lee literally I thought was gonna come across the room after me because I haven't read it.
2: That yeah. is my central I not want book.
3: That to happen. I'm going to read it.
0: Yeah. It was very good. And then so those are the two books I've been reading. So I started a lot of times when I reach a lull in my reading, I, I read chess books. So I've been reading sixty mem- my 60 most memorable games by uh, Bobby Fischer, famous American chess player. Huh. Fun.
1: Uh, but uh, I'll get to I more have serious reading soon. no theory. idea about this, about you. Yeah,
0: I didn't either. I, I didn't know you were a guy. chess guy. I, I am a chess guy, but I, the book reading is more recent. Yeah, <laughs> Paul, what did you finish last night?
1: I also finished two books. This is crazy. Uh, first, I finished Don Quixote. I wasn't going to mention that wow. though because it's taken me so long, but yeah. I did finish it. The second part is... Your mother and I are very proud of you. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I might say that the second part is better than the first, uh, but we have to discuss that next week. Interesting. We'll see. Um, I found it more comedic. It was it was more enjoyable to me. Um, and I finished The Sounds of a Wild Snail Eating. And that was gifted to me by Angela and at HLS Houston. Sure. And it's a phenomenal book. I very much enjoyed it. And it's doesn't um, sound like
2: it would be (laughs) allowed.
1: It is very much in the spirit of like Henri Fab and the in the in the naturalists of the nineteenth century, and it's it's the story of uh, the author ends up with some disease she can that doctors can't identify, and she's basically bedridden for I think years. And this is a story of a year where basically one of her friends brought in like a plant from outside and said. there was a snail I brought that in too. And like, she wakes up in the middle of night and can hear it eating just because everything's so silent and she can't do anything. And, and she starts observing this snail's life and realizing how much she's learning how to handle her own difficulties with, by, by just watching this snail. It was very, Mm. it was, it's, it's very much a meditation on the natural world and it's beautiful.
3: It sounds beautiful. And right up your alley.
1: Man, right up my alley, yeah. yeah. Only took me, I think they gave it to me like two years ago, only took me like two years to pick it up. Hey. But Did she phenomenal. get better? She does, actually. Okay. At the end, in the epilogue, you find out that she does. Very they, good. They find a way.
0: Spoiler alerts. Yeah. All right. Tanya, Martin?
3: I'm ready. reading Louise Penny's new book. Nothing serious at the moment because- It's Christmas. I'm doing lots of parties and church events.
2: Is that an Inspector Gamache book?
3: It is. No? It is. It's the I, brand new one. I read-
2: and he wasn't. I don't even think it was the first one. It was a just one that was like on a audio book sale or something. And mm. and I I only got yeah. About Paul third read of the, the first through.
3: one and didn't really. I mean, it didn't
1: inspire me to go read the I, rest. It was fine
3: to me. He's the ideal man besides Atticus Finch.
1: Inspector hmm. Patrick Gamache?
3: Mm-hmm. I thought yes. he was like
1: Paul was the ideal. Uh, man. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
3: I shouldn't let that. Okay, sound. let's clarify. <laughs> No, Ganosh I think is the ideal he's just the ideal man. Not Paul. Martin, who do you not Martin think is the ideal I, man. I, <laughs> uh, I, um, I mean in literature who's the ideal man? Don't you think Atticus Finch?
2: I, I think he's in terms of just no nobility. Mm-hmm. I think Atticus Finch is, is up there. Yes. Yeah. Um well I finished uh, I was I went to California for a week to visit my uh, stepmother, and finished uh, Wendell Berry's new book, um, The Need to, the Be, Need to Be Whole, uh, which was really excellent. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Um, and then uh, I just finished two nights ago uh, Joseph Pierce's book on Oscar Wilde. Mm. And it was one of the most, um, uh, what's the word? It, it, it just hit me like a ton of bricks, like, like no book I've read Recently, number one, it's very well written. Uh, of course, uh, Joseph is uh, is on our staff at Memorial College, and did a class on Oscar Wilde. And I was, it is such a tragic life, and in another sense beautiful, and in another sense very ugly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he dies a pauper, loses his wife, his children, everything because of sin and yet on his deathbed converts to Christianity. And I, after, after I finished the book the other night, my wife had uh, driven up to Louisville. I was still in Danville uh, at our Danville home. And, and I just, I I had to call. I was so depressed. I had to, I had to call her And, 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 and of course she, she didn't answer. I didn't talk to her the next day, but I mean, it was, uh, but But his whole thesis is that in Wilde's essays and criticism, he's has this uh, degenerate pose, De- you know he was one of the decadents. Um, and he has this pose that's this decadent pose, and yet in his fiction, he rises above that, and it's all regenerative and sometimes explicitly Christian. It's just this very strange mm. uh, thinker. <laughs> Um, so, uh, so, but it was, it was, it was, a, it was a wonderful book. And then uh, now I'm reading the Seahawk by Raphael Sabatini. Returned and when to I'm
0: 17. done, I might throw it in my trunk. Oh, yes. And, uh, so that and, I can have it next Christmas. That curate would it be... for a year. And then, yes. uh, then yes. give it to Tanya next. That sounds next great. <laughs>
3: I look forward to that moment.
0: Well, a vibrant reading update. I'm surprised. Y'all are reading a lot. So we have a bunch of questions here and they're all over the place.
3: But and you haven't shown them to us. That makes I, me a little nervous. I've
0: intentionally not shown them to you um, because I want your reaction. So the first question, we'll start with this. This is from Eric Collins, and he wrote this in, a, in an artful way. He said, this is something I've often felt even in my own life, a wistfulness for something that never was. A classical education steeped in the classics and taught to properly how, and taught properly how to think. For adults who miss the opportunity to have a classical education, what are your recommendations for resources and other ways to recapture this missed opportunity?
2: I I think two basic things. One is I think it is very beneficial to learn Latin and uh, use a, use a program like ours which steps you through it very uh, in a very organized way. Um, I read now. Uh, the uh, Vulgate Bible, every the gospel reading every day in Latin. That's how I keep it up. I used to teach it, taught it for twenty years. Um, it'll organize your brain. It will. Um, it will teach you the roots of your language, so that you see English in a very different way. Uh, and then also, I would say, and let me say two things. One thing is, I I have a whole talk on the five classical books. You know that which which are uh um the Iliad and Odyssey, Homer, one one book in a sense, uh Virgil's Aeneid, um, uh Dante's Divine Comedy, the King James Bible, and the plays of Shakespeare. But you do need some preparation to do those. Uh um John Sr. used to say that you need to read the thousand good books before you can read the hundred great books. And so I think You know, you just need to read widely, generally speaking, all the time, Uh, and because it's hard to approach the classics, the great, the great books, if you if you're not a a reader. Um, and and uh, you know, I've seen people who are just overpowered by a book. Rod Dreher, the the conservative writer, I had uh, dinner with him at a conference one time, and and he he told me he he just didn't read fiction, and I gave him this little lecture, and I told him to read Anna Karenina. Instead, he read Dante, and then a year later, he's got a book out called How Dante Changed My Life, and I, <laughs> I felt like, Rod, you don't read fiction, you know, so you read the first, the first great fiction work, and it changes your life, you know, what the second will too, and the third and the fourth, <laughs> and, um, and so it's strong drink, uh, and, um, but that's, that's how I was, uh, <clears throat> Latin, and the best
0: that's been thought and said. Donna, what about you? Do you Resonate with this wistfulness for something that you never had, or yes,
3: but I got it through my children through um, studying with them mm-hmm. and le- reading everything that they read for a while until they got ahead of me in high school. But, um, but that was really the beginning for me, and that was really where I needed to start. I couldn't have started with Dante, I had read Shakespeare, but you know, when you read Shakespeare as a college student, that's just a whole different. Thing. You're reading right. for a grade, and you're just trying to get through that next semester. So, um, and of course, I've read the King James Bible. But Dante, Homer, I didn't read until my children read it, except in high school little excerpts of it, but of the Odyssey, probably. But um then I got to the point where I could read more, but but also for me, climbing mean, Parnassus, which I hate to even mention because it's hard to find right now because it's, um, it's not available at the moment, though it will be again. You know, there's, the, I could talk about the printing um, industry for a podcast, but I won't hear. Um, it's just, that is the book if, you know, if you can find it. Yeah.
2: The, <clears throat> the best way to learn is to teach. And so, if you have children and you're homeschooling, that's that is the best right. way. That, that is the best way to yeah.
1: start. And if you don't have children and aren't homeschooling, uh, what's going through my head is uh, become a part of it, whether it's an informal or a formal book club, mm-hmm. not like Oprah's book club, but you know, a book Get, club that's right. that's reading these good books, the, these and and talk about it with somebody. Because just like what you were saying, Shane, where you read this book by Fitzgerald and you felt like you needed to talk about it. If, if you just read it and you put it to the shelf, you don't push yourself through that exercise of making sure that you've read it deeply mm. and you you need that exercise so that when, because, because people can read great books and maybe they've got a high level of reading and they're just reading it for the story and they never think what of it, yep. right? And then and that's, that's hard to do alone. Very hard mm-hmm. to do alone.
0: I had a professor in college who challenged me to write one page about every book that I write not 300 words or so about, or every book I write, every book I read, write 300 mm-hmm. words. Um, and I've loved going back to those, but that's just kind of the only thing you can do if you're alone. If mm-hmm. you have other people, yeah. you have, you tease out that page in mm. other people's experience with the book.
3: And, and mark your book mark mm-hmm. your books mm-hmm. as you read mark yeah. them so you can go back and find just you know i find after i've read a book to go back then and look through my notes is just a really eye opening overview that you're that you really need to do to revisit which is kind of like your 300 words mm-hmm. about each book is the same it's it's accomplishing the same thing
0: Next question is from Nick Dallas and next to his name, it says on YouTube he's a longtime subscriber. Also, Nick Dallas is the head of a school in Kenosha. I'm a big Nick Dallas fan, so <laughs> this, is a, this is a good question. Um, Nick asks, he, he'd be interested in hearing us compare new math with Singapore math. Now, we're not Singapore math experts at this table, and I didn't prep them with this question. New math, as I understand it, is kind of affronting conceptually fronting con conceptual mastery above arithmetic, mm-hmm. arithmetic elasticity and Singapore math. I don't know the ins and outs of it, but I know that a, a big piece of Singapore's me- uh, process is a method. There's a method of helping students to take the abstract and making it concrete. Regardless of our level of understanding of Singapore, what are the relationships between the math curriculum that you all have looked at and the new math? What makes, those curriculum distinct or similar to new math well
1: your i th- i think your definition of new math i mean sets it up really well right where you know, if you're if you're putting in front the 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 conceptual understanding with a disregard for the age and development of the student then you're going to end up with students who uh, don't really understand anything, right? Um, and, or maybe they have this general idea, but no idea how to put that into practice. And so I think you just use that in, in um, that sort of principle, you can use that and evaluate in any program where you say, okay, you know, what does a kindergartner need? A kindergartner, things have to be very concrete, Right. So what's our got pictures of ducks? Is it ducks these days? I can't remember.
3: Oh, now it's crayon boxes. Crayon boxes. Ducks may still be in there.
1: I'm not sure. There Run is,
0: staff has different animals throughout. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
3: Animals. And and different programs,
1: will use manipulatives, which are fine, but we try to get away from them quickly so we can move from that concrete to the abstract, right? Where they're doing it in their head. Um, and so, I, I mean, like you said, I, I don't know that anybody's really dug deeply into Singapore here uh, at this table. But that's what I would use to evaluate that. And in my conversations with administrators and some that have you Singapore, you know, the, what you have to watch out for is that you're not, you're not um, completely getting rid of the mastery of those arithmetical skills. Right. So people were bringing in Singapore with the express goal of, well, we want them to understand the concepts and they were, they were completely thrown away all drills, all, you know, making sure that the student had facility with arithmetic and, and then in recent conversations, uh, uh, the administrators that have seemed happy with Singapore are the ones that have supplemented it with drills and making sure that arithmetical skill is mastered in the younger years.
3: And the other thing that for schools, I, I think has been a problem when I have talked to schools that have used it um, is that it's it's expensive and it's, um, it requires a lot of the teacher because it is more than just basic arithmetic and it requires a lot of the parents. So they mm. struggle sending homework home because the concepts are are not
0: that method is very specific.
3: It is. It is, and so and that's. not what
0: parents are used to, right? right. So the follow up question then, Tanya, is below. Amanda asked this question. Uh, she loves uh, using Rod and Staff Math, but why did we choose it? Why did we choose Rod and Staff Math for <clears throat> our, our arithmetic program in the lower school?
3: It was really. Um, a process of elimination. Cheryl looked at every math program out there and it was the one that was traditional that um, she looked at all these old math programs mm. like Iroquois books and books from the 1800s, early 1900s. 1940s and 50s. She bought all of those and, they, and she would sit at her desk and actually do some of the drills and she couldn't do them as fast as the... And she said, you know, we're really dumbed down like i can't do there's no way i can do these as fast as they expected a third grader to do them back then and so she was looking for something as close to that as possible to replicate that mastery and that instant recall of arithmetic and then brian has been teaching a psat class and an sat class down the hill and he said that the biggest the biggest problem with high school students is they haven't mastered decimals percentages those things that they need they're ready to understand the abstract concepts because we've prepped them well for that that are in high school math but they just if they haven't mastered those basic skills we're wasting time on that when we've got these early years to do that
0: there's this in our on our file system at Memorial Press, which has a bazillion files and it's possible to navigate. There's this one file called Cheryl Lowe's files, and then there's this one called Labeled 2005, and it has four videos from her. And I've listened to all of these multiple times, and one of them is the math one. Mm-hmm. And she kind of goes through the, talking about how she went through all these different old curriculums. And she makes this statement at the very beginning of the episode where she says, One of her guiding principles, and I never got to talk to her about this, I'm sure you guys did, was not necessarily. She said, I I didn't go and study like what people were saying are the most effective math programs. She said, I'm consciously trying to go back to what was done before because it had been done for a long time and there's a conscious reliance on tradition. And so part of her reason for Rod and Staff is that it looks the most like what people had been doing for a long time to teach math.
2: Yeah, Cheryl believed that the math books of around the 1950s were were the best math books, uh, because they had, they had it right conceptually. They had the traditional conception of how particularly arithmetic should be taught, uh, but they had gotten, they had gotten the formatting finally right. Uh, and then after that conceptually, they start, uh, wasting away. Um, the, uh, I have not reviewed Singapore. Now the, the what I have heard about Singapore. And and I'm not a math person, so it's kind of ironic that that the most widely read article I ever wrote was called "Why Johnny Can't Add," <laughs> um, but uh, but in Singapore, what I've heard is that is that uh, it's it's a brand, it's an American brand. It's not what is done necessarily in Singapore. That what is done in Singapore is very Rod and Staff like. I mean, the reason that Singapore math is popular is because the country of Singapore outperforms just about every other country in the in the math comparisons in international uh, math tests. Um, but if you read up on what they do in Japan, in Singapore, all over Asia, it's 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 very much memorization and drill and practice, and that's 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 just part of that's how they teach everything over there, and that's why they do well in math is because they know that stuff. Um, and uh on in the book, which is the best book written on this called "Why Johnny Can't Add" by Morris Klein, um he makes the statement that in in terms of arithmetic, which is what we're doing in the early years of school, that we don't want to 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 uh, we don't want to study it to think about it. We want to study it so that we don't have to think about it. We want those things to be so ingrained in our mind, the process because arithmetic's just a tool. Mm-hmm. You know, you could, you could, you know, you go back to the ancient Greeks where they're contemplating the whole idea of one. uh, But that's that's not what we use it. We're we're teaching it as a tool. And when you're teaching it as a tool, you don't you don't ponder your hammer if you're a construction worker. You just learn how to use it, right? Uh, You don't have to know the whole history of the hammer. You don't know, uh, you know, who who thought up the hammer and and why they built it the way that you just learn how to use it for something that for, for. for you know whatever it is you're working on, so you don't have to think about it. You just learn how to use it, and you learn how to use it in a way that you don't think about that anymore. And that's that's the way we've always looked at math, and that's what
1: what Rod and staff does very well. Yeah. But it also allows you to think about it when you're older and at a point where you yes. can think about right. it, right? Well, so, it's,
2: it's 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 the tool you need to learn how to think about higher mathematics when you hmm. get up into algebra and and all that sort of
3: thing. Which again goes back to the whole premise for our curriculum is that it's age appropriate and time on task is so important. So we want to spend those early years doing what students do well in those years. And then when they're ready for more abstract concepts, then we've mastered what they're good at in those years. So why waste time doing abstract concepts that they're not ready for when we could spend our time doing something of much more value?
0: Tony, let's get away from math okay. for your thank sake. Okay, you. thank Yeah. Uh, Austin asks about Greek. He's a member of an Eastern... You're going to
3: me about Greek? <laughs> oh, I, think <laughs> I, t- I think this is
2: this I've got questions to ask her too that she doesn't know about. I'd love to hear her
3: answers.
0: So he's a part of an Eastern Orthodox Church, and so he wonders, I, I see the value of Latin, but is there help in studying Latin to learn Greek or other Slavic or Eastern European languages?
2: I, I, I mean, I, I think that uh, I mean, we've come across situations where we'll have uh, an, or, an Orthodox school. And so they're, they're wanting to become classical. And of course, normally what you do is learn Latin, but their tradition is Greek. And in, you know, just pedagogically in normal circumstances, Latin is better to learn first because it's it's a much more regular language than Greek there's a lot of subtleties to Greek but if you're coming from uh, an Orthodox uh background and and that's your theological tradition and you know the works that your kids are going to probably study first are going to be Greek I I don't see that it's a bad thing to do Greek first in that particular situation for for most people it needs to be Latin I think but I think there's an argument to be made that uh, it, it's okay to to learn Greek in a in an Orthodox school.
1: Well, yeah. one of the one of the arguments that we would make about why Latin first is, I mean, you're dealing with the same alphabet, right? So you're dealing with a young student, mm-hmm. but in, a, in an Orthodox church, right? And and the the art and what they're seeing on the walls every week or multiple times a week at church, they are seeing those Greek letters, right? Mm-hmm. So those would not be as foreign to that student than they would be to um, other students. The, the other thing I'd say, I mean, I at HLS, you're right, we start Latin in second grade and Greek in seventh. When, when I was a kid, I started Latin in third grade and Greek in ninth. And my experience learning Greek in ninth grade was okay, I have to learn a new alphabet and new declension paradigms, but all the hard work I'd done of understanding grammar had had given me a, a way to get much more quickly into the meat of Greek because I didn't have to sit there thinking about w- and really mastering the idea of an indirect object, right, that, that had been pounded into me through Latin.
3: And we hire a lot of seminary teachers to teach Latin who have never had Latin, but they've had years of Greek, and so it works the opposite direction, too. Mm-hmm. They understand grammar, and they understand how... Declensions and conjugations work, so it's very. You could start with either really and get the same the same major lessons.
2: Yeah, I learned Greek in graduate school uh, right after college, and then I came to Latin later. Uh, but I, even having done that, I, I always thought, well, it would have been better to learn Latin first, just because uh, you know the rules always apply, and you know, which is not the case in Greek. And the grammar is just clearer. It mm-hmm. just it it just stands out clearer in Latin than it does
1: Greek. Yeah, the um, is augmentation the right word and reduplication mm, um, augmentation and reduplication. Those, uh, you know, and and the vowels contracting for the augmentation and reduplication for those are prefixes to verb forms. Your Greek is that you're still sharp. Yeah. You got the aorist unlock. That's <laughs> that is difficult because you're you're having to actually understand. The, the sounds of the vowels and how the vowels are going to contract, and therefore, you know you put these two vowels together, and that's going to make this vowel it's a lot more
0: for a young student a more to morphologically really morphologically complex:' it is morphologically mm-hmm. more morphologically and ultimately
3: we want to do both.: to do both. Yes.
0: yes. I, I have a friend who he's the head of the Latin department, I believe, at uh, the Ambrose School. He's a good friend, and he's always used this illustration between Latin and Greek that Latin is like the piano, and Greek is like the electric guitar on the on in latin you have all these keys to work with they're all, it's very orderly you can you know you, you it's very solid but it's not flashy you know it's very it's simple and it's straightforward whereas with greek the electric guitar you can it's it's fantastic and there's subtleties and nuance and you know the participles are going everywhere and the tenses are are not really tenses and you know it's it there's complexities to it but to to learn the piano first is how you lock in your music theory and then you go to the electric guitar. And I think that that's a good way to illustrate the path that we've, that we've chosen for our land to, uh, to Greek uh, course of study. And my friend Austin came with that illustration, not me. <laughs> so our next question is from Aaron Jahi, or possibly Yahi, J-A-H-I, Jahi. What about neurodiverse students? in a traditional setting. Now, I don't know exactly how you would medically define the term neurodiverse or if there is particular definitions about that. So instead of answering that question directly, I would say, what about students who appear to genuinely struggle with the orderly classroom environment of a place like Highlands and School?
2: Well, I, I will tell you that uh, having run the online academy for a number of years, um. I talked to a number of parents who had their kids in our program and they had them in the Latin courses and had them in uh, a number of things, but, but mainly the, the, the Latin courses, I noticed this, and talking to them. And there was two or three of these ladies who were special needs teachers. And I said, well, that's interesting. Why, why do you have your kids in a Latin? She's, because it's organized. Mm. The more for those, for those students who have those kinds of uh, those particular kinds of challenges. um, She says, the more order you have and the more orderly the subject is, the better off the child is. And, you know, that, that's what we're all about <laughs> is, is uh not, not, not only orderly subjects that are taught orderly, but sometimes sort of disorderly <laughs> subjects, which are, which we try to tame. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's, that's, I don't. I don't know what child that's not good with. What kind of well,
1: and, child that's not. good And with. I think also. I mean, your point about the online academy kind of brings me to the the um, in a, in a homeschooling setting, right? It gives you the flexibility to say this subject we are going to be kind of this orderly, right? Mm. And this is the way we're going to do that then maybe we're gonna take a significant break, right? Whereas maybe in 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 a school, okay, you've got a 45 minute class and, and you got a two minute break and you got another 45 minute class and it's just on and on and on. And maybe in a, in a homeschool setting you can say, well, okay, we realize we need to change our pace. Maybe when we're doing school, we're very orderly, we're very structured, but we're gonna do that in a 20 minute, you know, segment or whatever it is, whatever the child can handle as, as they Age and develop and, and grow. Well,
2: and the other aspect of that, I don't know if this is exactly what the <clears throat> person asking the question was looking for here, but when you say neurodiverse, I mean, because I'll hear people ask, well, what about, you know, my, my kid's really good at math mm. or my kid's really good at something else. And so they'll feed that and they'll focus in on that. And I think that's exactly the wrong thing to do. I mean, uh, again, I've quoted uh, the baseball player Pete Rose. You know why? Why were you such a great all-around ba- baseball player? Because I practiced the things I wasn't good at. Um, you you got to you're trying to produce a well-rounded student, and if you just take the one thing they're really good good at and you concentrate only on that, you're not serving them very well.
0: Yeah.
3: No. So, I agree with all of that. <laughs> good. But I I would like to add that I think the most important thing here is to know your student. Mm. There is so much advice out there and there are so many people saying, this is how you need to treat this particular child or this condition that this child has. But I think the most important thing is just that you are the parent and you know your child better than anybody else. And so you do listen to all of that, but then don't let it, trip you up. Do what you feel like is the best thing for your student. And you do have the flexibility to do that in a homeschool environment. So if you need to slow it down, slow it down. If you need to do 5 subjects instead of 8, do that. But really and just make sure your student is progressing. Don't try to monitor that based on what other students are doing or try, you know, try to reach some unattainable goal. So don't overdo it. Ch- definitely challenge. You have to keep progressing and challenging, but not to the point where you're expecting your student to do something that, that they are going to fail with. And this, I would say the same thing in the classroom. My students that I had who struggled, I had great success with in partnership with their parents mm. who knew them better than anybody. And as a teacher – You really need to respect those parents and listen to them and do, you know, figure things out together in a partnership. And I and it can now I think we don't have any real severe needs here on our campus. We don't have the capacity for that. You know, we haven't we don't have therapists on staff. We don't have any of the help that a lot of schools do have. But I have had students that had charts this thick of stuff I had to read about, you know, with issues that they had. And they were very successful students, but their parents had to work really, really Mm -hmm. hard at home to make that happen. And they had to be dedicated. And they had to be able to have the courage to say to their teacher, this is what we're struggling with and this is what my child can do. Can you help me then modify the curriculum so that that will work?
2: Well, the other thing too is I think we, uh, I mean, a, a lot of schools throw a lot of things at students and I think, it, I think one, of, one of the disservices we do is to try to throw too many things at them, none of which they learn how to do very well. Um, it's better to learn a few things really well. And you have to, you know, right, right now there's a crisis in this country because of the whole uh, COVID lockdown situation, because a lot of kids didn't learn how to read. And if you don't learn how to read by fourth grade, you, you're the you rest of your life. You just need to stop and learn how to read. You need to stop and <laughs> mm-hmm. learn. I mean, this is just hugely important. I mean, reading is one of those things you need to, you need to learn how to do and do well. That is a, you know, so focus on the main things first and get those out of the way and don't listen to all these people who are, who've got some, you know, glitzy new program that they want everybody to use. Do a few things. And we,
3: I mean, we, we have a lot of curriculum and we, it looks like our standards are really high. You know, we've got supplemental reading books. You could take our curriculum and be totally overwhelmed if you looked at it all. And I'd, feel like I'm constantly saying to people, you don't have to do all of this. Mm. You're homeschooling because you are, you want flexibility. And so you can have that flexibility and you don't have to feel guilty for not doing everything.
0: I think maybe a corollary to Martin's point that you don't have to do everything, but you should do at least some things well, is that if your student can't even do some things well, have them do great things whatever those, as well as they can. And mm-hmm. I think that that's a part of, you know, Cheryl Swope's message is that however well they can do it, have them do great things. Well,
1: and I'm glad you brought up Cheryl Swope because I wanted to mention, you know, if you go read Simply Classical, and 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 I think this was coming out of the pedagogy conversation we had, right? So, you know, insofar as how she was teaching Michael and Michelle, like I have I have this recollection of of the kids bouncing on balls as they're reciting their Latin, right? Like in a school setting, having 10 or 15 kids bouncing on balls while you're Latin is not going to be helpful. But in a homeschool setting where she had uh, neurodiverse children, children with significant needs, that was a way that she was getting their physical needs met, working on physical strengthening and the engaging their mind and, and mastering the, that Latin um, that, that, was helpful. And so this, you know, as much as we push traditional pedagogy, it doesn't mean that in your particular scenario, you have to have your three kids sitting in little desks in the one, in one room of your house for eight hours a day. Right. I mean, that that's just, you know, you, you have to, as Tanya said, you have to know your child and, and do what you have to do to, um, to take the principles of a traditional pedagogy and, and meld those for what you need, what your child needs.
2: Before we had a curriculum, I used to speak at homeschooling conferences and I had a talk called the four subject curriculum. (laughs) And basically that was, you know, after you've done your basic skills, you know, reading, writing, and penmanship, you know, after you've done those in first through second grade and in in kindergarten through second grade, then, um, then you, it, it's Latin, math, composition, and a whole bunch of books. <laughs> and so, if you, if you, if you have mastered Latin, so you know your grammar really well, you're translating into English, which in and in of itself, later on, as your as your uh, translations are longer, is a composition exercise. Um, it's imitation in a way. Um, you you're on grade level in math. Um, you can write a paper, it's a competent short paper, and you have read. When I say a whole lot of books, I mean you know books of history, books of uh, literature, book, and you've you've read all the all the the ones you should have read by that time. Then what are you missing? You science know? and so science. Well, in science, I, I should actually I, should, I meant I missed meant add science in there. But but I think what we've been doing at Memorial Press since then is we have been um, kind of fleshing out what that all the other books is right. and, and trying to organize that a little bit better.
0: That's yeah, a good answer. So let's go ahead and end on this question from Peter Brown. Let me read Peter's question. It's well put. So who is the cooler dude, comma, C.S. Lewis or old J. R. R.
1: Are you look at me first. I'm, I mean, when if I got unpack this idea of cooler
0: dude. Yeah, that's
1: right. Uh, that's, it's a it's a nuanced
2: term. I thought
3: it was going to be one of you, and I got to answer. Oh.
2: <laughs> well, I, there's a very book good, good book by Humphrey Carpenter called The Inklings, and it tells the whole backstory of their relationship and and all this sort of thing. And um, uh, you know, I think Lewis was ended up being more celebrated, but I my if I have to choose between one of them, I, I'm I'm choosing Tolkien. There's just something um, more, something deeper about Middle Earth than about Narnia. I mean, I like Narnia, but I think Middle Earth goes deeper than that in a lot of ways. And and I so in the end, I I'm I end up uh, going with Tolkien. But you know, I don't have to choose, which is the nice thing. Oh,
0: I'm I'm making you choose. <laughs>
3: I'm choosing c s. Lewis because I don't like fantasy, which is all I've read that Tolkien did he do anything else? Mm-hmm. And so I'm not really even a big Narnia fan, but I do recognize the brilliance in both. Let me say that. <laughs> but for my preferred reading, I really i i mean mere Christianity to me is the book I go back to over and over again.
0: I don't know if this is true because I'm not like a scholar of Tolkien or Lewis, but I think a part of coolness is this kind of removed condescension to others. And I get that sense from Tolkien that he kind of thought Lewis was a little beneath him because he was a real artist writing fantasy and he was a real <laughs> linguist. And he, you know, so I, I think that maybe he's the cooler dude if we're talking <laughs> <You> about <think? laughs> coolness in the abstract. Can, can, can
2: I amend my answer? Sure. Okay. I'm faced with the question, either C.S. Lewis or J.R.R. R. Tolkien. And my answer is G.K. Chesterton. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, that's that saves me because I was gonna have to to really hurt myself and say I agree with Martin, but now I don't have to. I would I would vote for Tolkien.
0: Nice. All right. Well, thank you guys for this episode. It's a lot of fun. Thank you for the questions. Send any more if you'd like. See you next time. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Classical Etc. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like this episode. consider leaving us a positive review and sharing it with a friend. A huge thank you to the Memoria Press Podcast Network for hosting our show. Be sure to check out all the great podcasts there. As always, I'm Shane Saxon. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Memoria Press
1: Podcast Network, providing a classical Christian perspective on the world of education. To learn more about Memoria Press, visit us at memoriapress.com. To connect with us, find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll
2: see you next time.